May the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Once it's broken, how do you put it back together again? When I was ordained in 2011, my parents gave me a communion set that was handmade out of blue and brown pottery. It was a one-of-a-kind work of art, vessels for bread and wine, the symbols of Jesus giving his blood and body for the world, the symbol of God's unbreakable relationship with us. But just a few months after that, on the first retreat I helped lead, the first time I'd ever helped lead communion, one of my friends was trying to be helpful and they were packing up everything and they dropped the chalice and it broke. I was crushed, but I knew just what to do. You see, there's that saying that you can fix anything with duct tape or WD-40, but the people that say that left out another miraculous substance. They didn't know MJ Herring very well. Over the years, I have watched my father pull out that little bottle of super glue on countless occasions, delicately brushing the pieces and putting them just in the right spot and taking random household items to prop against them and bowing down to God and gravity with wordless prayers while the glue set. Sometimes these were priceless heirlooms. Sometimes it was an old coffee mug or a Happy Meal toy that should have been thrown out. Sometimes you couldn't tell that it had been glued, and sometimes you could see the crack, and sometimes the dang thing just fell apart anyway. So I applied my dad's skills and slathered on the Gorilla Glue, and the old chalice works just fine. Sure, there's a scar, but maybe that just adds to the story of grace that it tells. I bet Moses wished he had had Gorilla Glue. As Pastor Jennifer already told us, when he and the leaders were up on the mountain, God told them that the people were so impatient, so hungry for a God they could feel and touch and see and understand that they melted down all their jewelry and they made a golden calf. They were bowing down and worshiping this thing, this chunk of junk, as if it was responsible for bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. They were bowing down to this thing as if it was the Lord their God who gave them water to drink out of the rock and bread and quail from heaven who had led them through the middle of the Red Sea harmless with fire and smoke to lead them. Moses was so ticked off, he smashed the Ten Commandments on the ground. These were not just rules, but practices and boundaries that would cement their relationship with God. The first of them being, thou shalt not have no other gods before me. Of course, those tablets weren't the only thing that was broken. So was the Lord their God. So was the relationship between them. 
God was so angry that he withdrew his presence from them because he was afraid of what he would do if he got too close. The people were crushed. Moses was crushed. They wanted it to be just like it was before the calf. Moses knew the people deserved to face the consequences, but he boldly demanded that God show mercy anyway. And that's where today's scripture begins in chapter 1, or chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you broke, Moses. It's almost as if God is saying, can we start over? Those are some of the most healing words in my house. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to the Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain. And do not let flocks or herds graze in front of that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Why does he say this over and over again? I didn't talk about this much last Sunday, but when Moses first meets God in the burning bush, he asks for God's name. He says, who shall I say has sent me? But God doesn't really give him a name. In the Hebrew, it's just Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. All consonants. No vowels, which means for translators, you have to make your best guess at what God is really saying here. It could literally be translated as, I am who I am. But it could also be, I will be who I will be, or I will be with whom I will be with. For shorthand, most Bibles just translate this, the Lord, because you see, Jews won't even say the name. It's too sacred. But I think it's important to remember the meaning behind it. I like Terence Fretham's suggestion, I will be who I am. I am who I will be. Because as Hebrews 13.8 tells us, the God we know most fully in Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My friends, the Lord our God is unchanging, even as our understandings necessarily evolve over time. That's what this origin story series is really all about. We struggle with the Old Testament because God feels so wild and free. And it's a good thing to be reminded of that. But we also might be turned off by a deity who seems so angry and capricious and peoples whose customs and religions are so strange but we've got to read more carefully listen to what else moses god says to moses continuing in verse six i am who i will always be a god who is merciful this word merciful comes from 
which Phyllis Tribble notices is very similar to Rachem, which means womb. She says God's mercy is womb-like mother love. And the Lord is gracious, one who gives gratuitously without us deserving it. God gives to us like those people who give us gifts that feel, make us feel like they're being way too generous, that make us uncomfortable with their extravagance. The Lord is slow to anger. Walter Brueggemann says this should literally be translated as God has a long nose. In chapter 32, after the golden calf incident, the Lord has just told Moses, and this is a literal translation, now let me alone so that the heat of my nostrils may burn hot against them. It's like a horse snorting. And that, so that I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. But Moses pleads with God, turn from the heat of your nostrils, change your mind, and do not bring disaster on your people. God gets angry like we get angry. We don't like to talk about that very much. But anger is just that spirit within us that says, I've been hurt. I have been violated. And it mattered. I'm not saying we always understand our anger correctly or channel it righteously. But anger is God-given. God gets angry, but God has a long enough nose that it cools before we get burned. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love is this word chesed that is used over and over in the Hebrew Bible for covenant love, or I like to call it stubborn love. Chesed is when Ruth clings to Naomi. Chesed is when God clings to God's people. Walter Brueggemann says the Lord has a great capacity and resolve to remain loyal. That God will put up with a great deal to hold the relationship between us together. God will sustain the relationship even when to us it feels unfixable. The Lord is abounding in faithfulness. That word means completely reliable. Keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. Chesed, for the thousandth generation. It's generally accepted that a generation is about 25 years. So 25,000 years. For all intents and purposes, for our minds, forever. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The word forgiving literally means to lift off. God lifts the burden, the crushing weight of our sin and our shame off of us. Though Moses' people might have deserved to be destroyed or abandoned, God says, I will be who I am. I am who I will be. Merciful like a mother, gratuitously giving, slow to anger, abounding in stubborn love, fully reliable, lifting off the burdens of sin and shame, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But then there's verse 7b. 
yet by no means clearing the iniquity, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? It feels like a contradiction. Human nature is to choose a side, one way or the other, this or that. Some of us want God to be this inflexible enforcer of the rules, punishing or at least withholding blessing from those people who are wrong or do things wrong. Until, of course, we're those people. Others of us want to say God will always just say, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. It's all right. No big deal. When it's actually not okay, when it actually is a big deal, when we are harmed and when others are harmed. So the former is all wrong because there's no grace in it. And the latter is all wrong because it's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is a pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock again and again. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it causes, costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man or a woman the only true life. The Lord upon the mountain offers Moses and his people grace, but it's costly. Costly because relationship demands accountability. Just like when we are unfaithful in a relationship with a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend, there has to be accountability for the relationship to be put back together. Trust that took a long time to build and a moment to lose that must truly be rebuilt. A new distance that must be crossed so that intimacy can happen again. A gaping wound that must be healed so that we can all become whole. I don't have to tell you this. Many of you have survived things that should have broken you. You and your relationship have survived with lots of counseling or prayer or hard work or grace, costly get grace, probably a lot of those things together. The relationship was glued back together and maybe it's continuing to be glued back together. The scars and the cracks probably remain. And for others, what was broken can never be put back 
together again. Our relationship with God is similar but different. Similar in that when we are unfaithful, it creates distance between us. Similar in that when there is hurt, it's hard to heal. Similar in that the consequences can last generations. These are self-inflicted consequences, usually more than punishments. The Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years on a trip that some say should have taken 11 days. But it's different with God because the relationship can always be put back together again. Look at verse 7 one more time. Iniquities to the third and fourth generation, steadfast love for the thousand generations. The mercy of the Lord outlasts the consequences. God's love ultimately wins. And Moses quickly bowed down to the ground and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, I pray, let my Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. The Lord said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people I will perform marvels such as have not been done in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you shall live with will see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. In my estimation, the awesome thing wasn't any miraculous thing that God did to help the Israelites live in the desert or to get them to the promised land. It was that God took this stiff-necked people and made them His people as long as it took. That God took what was shattered into a million pieces, not the tablets, but the relationship and put it all back together. This morning, the Lord, who spoke to Moses on the mountain, says, I am who I will be. I will be who I am forever. The Lord says, choose life. Choose life with me. To gain your life, you'll have to lose what you think life is on your own. You'll have to repent to turn and go another way, to change. You have to let go of those ways of thinking and living, the possessions and distractions and pursuits that you think will fulfill you or make you happy, but actually separate us from one another. It will feel costly, but you'll gain more than you could ever ask for or imagine. Yourself, your soul, because my steadfast love to the thousandth generation, to the thousandth power, is waiting to pick up the pieces of your life and put them back together as long as it takes. Maybe this is what Jesus said to Judas. That's what one of my favorite preachers, Bono, the front man of U2, sings about in his song, the, Until the End of the World. In his imagination, Judas says to Jesus, In the garden I was playing the part, 
I kissed your lips and broke your heart. You, you were acting like it was the end of the world. And then later, in my dream, I was drowning my sorrows, but my sorrows, they learned to swim, surrounding me, going down on me, spilling over the brim. Waves of regret and waves of joy, I reached out for the one I tried to destroy. You, you said you'd wait until the end of the world. I think Bono is right. Jesus was the cup, the vessel that held God's stubborn love for the world until it was shattered. But the shattering actually allowed the love to spill over the brim, to spill all over humanity. And that same love that miraculously put Jesus, the shattered one, back together, still showing the cracks, still bearing the scars, holds out his hand to the one who broke him, hoping to put him back together too, waiting for him to say yes, even until the end of the world. My friends, however broken you feel this morning, whatever you've broken in your life, in this world, know that Jesus is holding out his hand to you today. And I pray that he, you will let him put the pieces of your life back together too. Amen.